Yeah, and I think something that's worth bringing up here is is something that's at the kind of the foundation of like why this works, and that's the concept of progressive overload, um, which we've probably talked about this on the podcast before, but to give everybody a refresher, basically means that if you just keep doing the same thing, there's nothing for the body to adapt to. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Mashbox Podcast presented by Ignition Coach Co. I'm your host, Adam Saban, and today I'm joined by my co-host, Andrew Jeanette, and Ignition co-founder, Dylan Johnson. This week, we'll be covering periodized training. This may not be a new term for you, but hopefully everyone will be able to pull some insightful takeaways from this episode that you can apply to your own training. Also, we received another listener question, so stay tuned to the very end so you can hear us discuss some of the key markers we look for when we're analyzing aerobic decoupling with our athletes. As always, if you like what you hear, share this with your friends and leave us a five-star review. If you want us to cover a specific training-related topic in a future episode, drop us an email at info at ignitioncoachcode.com with email title The Matchbox Podcast, or you can send us a DM on Instagram. All right, let's get into it. Hey guys, welcome back. We're, uh, we're missing our uh, Ignition co-founder, Drew Dillman, today for the first time. I feel like he's, I think he's been on every single episode so far. Um, we've got Andrew, Dylan, and myself here today. What's up? Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of weird not having Drew here. He wasn't in the he wasn't in the meeting either, so we kind of got to the point instead of lollygagging around for 30 minutes. Yeah. It's funny cuz Drew, Drew is actually the one who who recommended we try and keep these podcasts under an hour, but uh, we'll see if we if we hit that today then maybe we've figured out the common denominator. <laughs> um, so, so today's topic, we're, we're going to get into um, a bit of the basics of periodized training, uh, what periodization is, who it applies to, and uh, some mechanisms for implementing it. Um, before we get into that, uh, we got to talk a little bit about some racing from this past weekend, I think. Uh, I know at least one of us did some racing. I don't know how it went, but we're going we're gonna to find out. Two of us did, maybe? Well, I, yeah, I don't know who you're referring to as the one, but I did do some racing last weekend. Okay. Yeah, let's hear about it. Okay, so um, as our loyal listeners know, I'm in Colorado right now getting ready for Tour of the Gila, acclimating to altitude. Um, and so I lined up for um, the famous Boulder Roubaix, which which I found out um, actually only happens every other year. So, you know, that, really? that, yeah, that made the event feel a little bit more special to me than... I have never heard of that. Yeah, I it's, didn't know that either. It's, yeah, it's... Only on the thing. even years? I guess so. Uh, okay. wow. Maybe COVID threw it off. I'm not sure on like where it typically huh. falls. But um, it, it was a pretty star-studded field. Um, so Alexi Vermeulian was there. Um, let's see. Like all of the U23 National Cycle Cross team was there. Um, it, it was fast. Um, you know, and, and it, was, it was my sixth day at altitude. So I was a little nervous that's sort of like the the point where you're like not yet acclimated but you've like started to like really accumulate some fatigue that you can't get rid of um but you know the legs are feeling okay um and i was i was happy to be out there i was happy to be racing again um really fun course tons of dirt little rough little loose which is you know just the way i like it and 
I flatted 90 minutes in, and that was oh. it. And then it was over. Um, you're running tubes, man. Can't I know. That tubeless setup you, were, you had tubes in your bike? Yeah. What? <laughs> well, is this, so, is this race done on a road bike or a gravel bike? 90% of people are on road bikes. Okay. Um, it's, all on, uh, it's all on gravel that's like on the northeast side of Boulder, which is yeah. all fairly flat, rolling. Um, the, the, the gravel is, is more dirt than gravel. Like, right. There's really no right. chunks of gravel. It's, it's more just hard, compacted dirt. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's still some like ruts and stuff. I mean, you, you can definitely flat out there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I came around the corner and I um, just like hit a rock, like hit like a very small kind of like marble-sized <laughs> rock, and that, that was enough to, to do me in. And 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 yes, Dylan, I very much should have been running tubeless, but what uh, what size tires? Twenty eights. Okay. Pumped up to one hundred and one twenty. Is for, that for speed? I, no, it's a joke. I yeah. can't tell if that's a joke. <laughs> All right. Um, cool. So did you? I don't know if that's fix it and finish, I, I, or you just drop out. I dropped out. Okay. I went and trained. I was like, you know what? Because it. So um, how was it I going up have, to that point? It was going well. Yeah. I mean, there was definitely some some hard moments where, you know, I felt, um, you know, like a little undergunned. Um, but, but there was never a moment that I felt like I couldn't hang on. Um, and I was pretty good in the gravel corners, whereas a lot of people were, you know, who, who don't have like an off-road background were struggling a bit more. So I think there was like a lot of efficiency for me to like have over other people out there. Um, mm-hmm. and, and my feeling was that I was going to be able to make the selections just by virtue of like riding super smart and conserving energy, you know, maybe despite... Mm-hmm not not feeling fully acclimated yet um but sale of the um how did the race shake out um so there there was a breakaway for maybe like the first third of the race came back um and then let's see what happened um i think it was just like a like selections just started to go it just sort of blew up and it, it sounded like there was maybe like groups of 10 out on the road. So like two or three groups of 10 um, with maybe, you know, half of the field getting dropped or dropping out. Lots of flats, mm-hmm. lots of crashes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, funny enough, I didn't actually know the, the name of the kid who won. I'd never heard of him, mm-hmm. but apparently he's a big deal and, you know, he's, He's going to like a world tour team or something like that. But it was like a like a super fast collegiate kid um, from Boulder. Uh, from the area, I think he was okay. a CMU rider. Gotcha. Um, and then I think Alexi was second. Um, yeah, you know, honestly, I didn't see the finish. <laughs> I because uh, I you know I didn't I didn't want to waste a good day of training, so I yeah I kind of skedaddled and. Right. Um, I came back just to, I had a, a teammate, Christian, um, who was still in the race. Um, so I wanted to kind of see him finish and, um, you know, some homies from out here who were, who were also in there, but I, I sort of missed time to finish. They finished quicker than I, I expected. So I think they averaged like, um, maybe like 25 miles an hour for mm. the, the race was like 90 something miles and it's, yeah. 
you know, pretty undulating and in dirt. So I thought that, yeah. that was that was pretty impressive. Yeah, Fast for race. sure. Nice. Cool. Well, um, I didn't race this past weekend. Um, what did I do? I did have a very hard workout on Friday. I think I might have talked about how I was going to do it last week, but it was a um, it was kind of like as much tempo as you can fit in in one ride before you can't handle any more tempo. I ended up doing three hours at tempo, um, which for me was 320 watts. I broke that up into uh, 40. I, I've got a 40-minute climb near my house, which is about perfect for it. It's it's a very gradual grade, so I did four of those, and then to round it out to three hours, I did another like uh, 20, 15, 20 minute effort. However much I needed to make it three hours. And then I was dead. <laughs> you did all that on a hill repeats of a 40 minute climb. Mm-hmm. What, what was the climb doing? It was uh 276 up to the parkway. Nice. <laughs> it's not actually a 40 minute climb. It's like an hour climb. Dylan just did it in 40 minutes. <laughs> well, it depends on where you, where, where you think the climb starts, you know, some people think it starts when you enter uh, Pisca. Some people think it starts like when you cross the bridge and there's that fork at the fish right. hatchery. For locals, this is a, you know this is not an interesting conversation, but <laughs> or I mean for non-locals, this is not an interesting mm-hmm. conversation. But um, yeah, so, and then so Dylan, so your next races um or big, big races on unbound, but you've got a couple other gravel races in the meantime. So are you, are you primarily training on the gravel bike then? Uh, that was on the road bike just because the entire ride was on the road. Um, okay. but I am, I am starting to do more, more time on the gravel bike, especially because the gravel bike has aero bars unbound. I'm going to run aero bars and I need to get used to it. Um, so like, Tuesday, I did a seven-hour ride on the gravel bike with the aero bars. Um, the whole and time in, in the aero position? No, I mean, when you're riding gravel, you're not spending 100% of the time okay. in the aero position. You're you're spending you're spending time in the aero bars when it makes sense to spend time in the aero bars, like a flat section that's not overly technical, um, which is just like unbound. You're not going to spend 100% of the time in the aero bars at unbound. Right. You're going to spend... And, and time do in the you aero. get into the aero position more for the aero benefit or for some recovery also? Yeah, so I've I, I know that a lot of long distance gravel riders talk about how it's nice to have the aero bars because it's another position to have and it it takes pressure off of your arms and your torso and it's you know it's just like cool to switch switch positions um mid-race when you're out there for so long that is not the reason why i do it at all it's a hundred percent for the arrow gains <laughs> hey here's a here's a question about running arrow bars on your gravel bike um given that you're sort of like rotating your torso onto your handlebars <laughs> mm-hmm. um do you run like more more front tire pressure than you would without arrow bars yeah that is a good question i don't think i've given it enough thought to run. (laughs) Um, so I would say no, I I would say that most of the time when you're, when you're on the arrow bars, it's going to be a fairly non-technical 
part of, you know, section of the course. And even in gravel races where you can spend a lot of time, I've, I've also gotten this question. So if I'm putting aero bars on my gravel bike, do I need to change my saddle position somehow mm. to account for the aero bars? My answer to that is no, because even in races like unbound where you can, th- there's, you can spend a lot of time in the aero bars. You're still going to be spending the majority of the time in your normal riding mm-hmm. position because mm-hmm. you're in a group drafting or you're going up a climb or you're going on a downhill. Um, I would say that most people can, if they're running aero bars on their bike and they're used to aero bars and it's not going to get super uncomfortable for them to be in the aero bars when they're 180 miles into the race can probably expect to spend 25% of unbound in the aero bars. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, that's why you're trying to uh, train and get adapted to that position too. So you don't have to change your riding setup to accommodate the aero bars. Um, Yeah. And, and I, maybe I'm just lucky, but to be honest, I don't really find that my saddle needs to be in a different spot when I get into the aero bars. I think, I think it feels fine. I I think there are people that struggle with that when they get into the aero bars, they feel like their saddle needs to be further forward. I I don't find that to be the case. I mean, I I think it probably has a lot to do with like how much your pelvis rotates like Mm -hmm. normally, like just when you're in your like aero road position. Um, Mm -hmm. And also how good of a job you've done setting up your, your aero bars. Right, so like the super old school style is, is like having your elbows super super low, mm-hmm. um, but but as probably a lot of our listeners even know, the trend recently has been to have like really tall, yeah, elbow pads, um, and then you know sinking your head, sort of turtling, having more of like a flat back with your head low. Right. So you know, I feel like if you do that, it, it you know it doesn't require this like excess level of pelvic rotation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's probably honestly like really not any different of a position than if you were like riding in like the, like kind of the power position on the hoods. Yeah. And uh, the thing about most, most of the time when you throw aero bars on a gravel bike, unlike when you're trying to set up a TT bike, when you're trying to set up a TT bike, you want to get those aero bars in the, at the exact right height, um, to maximize aerodynamics and power output, um, and, and that can get, you know, we, we could have a whole podcast just about that. But most of the time when you're throwing aero bars on a gravel bike, they just end up being at whatever height they're at. <laughs> um, I think there are, there are ways, that, there are aero bars, you know, clip on aero bars out there where you can adjust the height, um, which I think can be useful. But a lot of times they just end up being the height that they're at and, and um, you sort of have to adapt to that. Right. Because I, uh, the, going back to what I said, I don't recommend people changing either their bar height or their saddle position to accommodate aero bars for gravel racing. Get your normal position dialed and then worry about the aero bars because you're going to spend more time in your normal position. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, so, Andrew, so, so we know you've got. Heal it coming up. When is that again? Starts next Wednesday. Okay. So you're within a week now. Within a week now. So Sorry, are um, you starting to do any kind of taper for that? 
Yeah, yeah. It's well, it's it's really kind of an interesting balance. Um, first of all, you know, I probably won't, and I generally don't taper too much for a stage race. Um, I, I find that like I perform better sort of training almost right up to it um, with like a like a lower TSB. I think is is, is optimal for for an event like that, um, especially one that's at altitude. It's going to be um, like so driven by like fatigue resistance and like aerobic ability. Um, I don't think I need to be super, super fresh. Um, and then the other confounding factor there is that, um, you know, I had a collarbone surgery seven weeks ago. So um, I really need to be kind of like thinking about the future still and, and like really trying to continue to, to build fitness. I think I probably could have afforded like a little bit bigger of a taper had I, you know, had more time to train you know, maybe worked up to like a, like a 120 CTL and then sort of like tapered down in, but I'm going to be just hitting 90 at the end of this week, which for me is sort of like the, like the minimum amount of fitness that I feel like I can race well on. Um, and so, you know, having too big of a taper would definitely, um, I think be like a sacrifice for future races that are more important for me. Mm-hmm. Sure. I, I I do feel that um, uh, a taper is probably more a longer taper is probably more important for somebody who has had the proper amount of time to train and is very well trained, and uh, somebody who has a shortened time frame that they have to train. Uh, first of all, they have less cumulative fatigue that they need to taper from, and second of all getting every last bit of fitness before the race is more important for that person. Well, I'm glad to hear that my, my strategy here is don't approved. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's There's going to be sort of like a, um, a logistical taper, so to speak. It's like sort of like a force taper by virtue of having to do the travel from, um, Colorado to New Mexico. So there's going to be like a couple of days that are sort of like forced off the bike. And, and I think honestly that should be sufficient. Um, it'll probably mm-hmm. be like two, two days, super, super easy or like off, you know, and then maybe like an endurance day and like a day of kind of like openers. Mm-hmm. I think that that should work out pretty well. Um, and I mean, the other thing too, is that for me, like um, such a high majority of the training I've been doing up until this point has just been endurance riding you know, and as we've talked about a lot on this podcast, if you are pacing your endurance rides correctly, you're not incurring a lot of autonomic nervous system stress. Um, Mm -hmm. The confounder being that I'm at altitude. So there's like, there is some additional oxidative stress happening there from that, um, that you're going to have to recover from. But I think um, a taper would be much more necessary had I been doing like a lot of high intensity going into this. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, Cool. I'll give a brief update here before we get into it on what I've been doing. Um, So I, as you guys know, I had a kind of strenuous winter season of fat bike racing. Uh, So I decided to take the month of April off of racing just to get some quality training in. I was expecting that the weather here would have been better so I could have gotten some higher volume in, but the weather's just been brutal lately, so it's been hard to get outside. Um, last week, I did my first like exclusively indoor training week in I don't know a long time, 
maybe a couple years. I don't even know when the last time it was, but the weather was just terrible and the training I wanted to fit in just wasn't conducive to the conditions. So I resorted to, yeah, exclusively riding the trainer, um, which wasn't, wasn't too bad. Uh, motivation was still high. So that, that, that helped get through it. Um, but I've got a pretty big month of May and June coming up with some mountain bike and gravel races, um, pro XCT in Wisconsin, uh, gravel race out in Spearfish, South Dakota, Lutzen 99er, and then a bunch of local races. So kind of just building for that. And, um, funny enough, my next event is actually for all my golf fans out there, uh, the local U S open qualifier, uh, that's going to take place like a week and a half from now. So that's kind of my preparation lately too, is trying to sharpen the game for, for that local qualifier to see what happens there. Um, another update, got a new coach, uh, the one and only Andrew Jeanette here, uh, hired him as my coach a couple weeks ago. It's going great so far and, um, looking forward to seeing just some good improvements and, um, more importantly, just an outside perspective. So I'm not biasing my training in a way that I want to, but in a way that it should be trending, uh, for the events that I have coming up. So, um, Andrew will be keeping me honest and keeping me on my toes and, um, yeah, pushing me to get the, the, you know, the fullest extent of myself out of me. Um, yeah, let's get into it. Got a, uh, I don't know, I think a pretty important topic today for, for anyone who is trying to train to get better, um, for, for, events or just general fitness. Um, we're going to be talking about periodized training. Um, it's, I don't know, I would say it's probably the most widely adopted training, uh, approach for, for any kind of structured training that's, uh, applied to, um, endurance athletes. Um, do you guys have like a general definition of periodized training that you'd want to want to throw out here? Uh, well, I mean, I, I think at its most basic level, it just means that training is changing over time as opposed to doing the exact same training continuously. You know, there are a lot of people like that who, who maybe they're not serious athletes, but they're, you know, you ever heard somebody say, Oh, you know, my, uh, my cousin, he, he runs five miles every day. That's his thing. You know, that's not periodized training. That's, that's, uh, the opposite, I guess. It's the, I don't know if there's a word for it, but basically periodized training means that your, your training is changing over time. Yeah. And I, and I would, um, add to that and say that periodization is like an organization of periods of like increasing load and followed by deload in training. So, so it all has to do with, with building up and then taking a break. Um, in, in breaking that down into, you know, whatever chunks you see fit for, um, to optimize your performance. Yeah. And I think yep. to, to kind of combine both of, uh, y'all's answer there, like within a given period, you're doing focused training. So the training will probably look very similar for that period, but for the next period, it should look somewhat different, right? Um, and I think that's where, you know, we're going to get into a couple different mechanisms here for applying periodized training. Um, but that's the general premise is that during a specific period of training, you're, you're generally focusing on, uh, you know, trying to build a specific adaptation. 
throughout that time. Mm-hmm. And maybe that is trying to improve your five mile pace. I don't know, but hopefully your next well, period is going to be something different. <laughs> right. But I mean, like going back to the example of somebody trying to improve their five mile pace, I don't know if the optimal training strategy there would just be to ride, run five <laughs> miles every day. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. Um, okay. Well, so um, oh, go ahead, Andrew. I was just going to say, and that's something that's sort of like at the essence of periodization is having periods of general preparation and periods of specific preparation, mm-hmm. right? And um, I think, you know, we can get into this more in a minute here, but I think um, there's been like a lot of talk recently in so many words on how important the specific preparation is for performance. So, you know, for instance, we've talked about on this podcast, um, near Niels Vander, what was his name? Niels Vanderpool. Um, mm-hmm. yep. his training was, was almost the majority of it was like non-specific to his event. Mm-hmm. He was riding 30 hours a week on the bike to prepare right. for like a 10 minute, um, ice skating, speed event. skating. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's, this, this is something that sort of changed, I think over the years. And I think originally the 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 approach like if you had read like joe friel's training bible was that you did general preparation that looked less like your event in terms of its intensity distribution and then the closer you got to your event it became like super specific so you know like Mm -hmm. by like the week before your event you'd be doing training that was basically just like replicated the the demands of your race Um, but now you know that's that is maybe not not considered the optimal approach and we, we can get into that, but yeah, I will say that. I mean, Niels Vanderpool, uh, his training did get more specific as he approached the Olympics. Cause just, just by the fact that he was spending more time on the skates as opposed to the bike. Well, sure. And, you know, and we, on the previous podcast talked about, you know, including C races and B races in, mm-hmm. insofar as you consider those training for your A event, I mean, that's as specific as it gets. So, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to say that there's, um, that you shouldn't do specific training, but I think the amount or like the proportion of it that yields an optimal performance, I think is less than maybe previously thought. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. So, and typically, um, you know, so, some common terms that are used are breaking out your entire season into these different cycles. Um, there's, three general cycles that are typically referred to in macro, meso, and micro cycles. Macro being kind of the season overview, the the broad scope of maybe it's a couple seasons even, um, kind of like the general overview of what your your goals are over a long period of time. Um, Meso cycles being uh, kind of that period that we're talking about here, you know, what's taking place over six, eight, 12-week period. Um, And then micro cycles are typically like, you know, 10 days or less, kind of like what is the uh, narrow focus for what you're trying to achieve um, in those smaller blocks. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about who who periodized training is typically geared towards. I mean, it, it, I think it can be geared towards anybody who's looking to um, see improvements in their training or their life. I mean, you could you could periodize anything. I mean, you could periodize work, you know, if that's going to optimize your performance. Um, 
so so I, I I think it's for everyone really. Um, it's for everyone who who wants to have periods where they're their best. Yeah, I'm in agreement with that. I would say, I mean, the only people that it wouldn't be for would be if you do exercise purely as a sort of, um, I don't know, like mental break and uh, you don't care about improving. Um, but anybody who cares about improving, you, your training needs to change over time if you want to make improvements. Yeah, and, and I would actually even say that you know, even if you're just a, a leisure athlete who uses um, sports or, you know, endurance activities for an escape or some kind of mm-hmm. mental break, at some point, you're probably going to need to change up the stimulus or else you're not going to get that mental break anymore because your body adapts so well to what it's doing uh, mm-hmm. that, yeah, your, your, your body just starts to crave something else. Um, I agree. You see it a lot, a lot of times, and, and this happens, people... You know, it's, it's not the only reason, but a lot, a lot of times, you know, people, the, the new year, they have this new resolution uh, to go out and, you know, hit the gym every day um, or hit the gym five days a week. But after like three months, they, they, you know, training starts to get a little bit easier. They're not seeing as much improvements. Um, maybe it starts to get kind of boring. Uh, and then summer comes around and they just, you know, get outside a little bit more, or just lose focus, you know, hitting the backyard barbecues instead of the gym or whatever, and, and they, they just kind of fizzle out. Um, whereas if maybe they took a little more of a periodized approach, it would be more mentally stimulating throughout that entire time, mm-hmm. um, and they wouldn't get burnt out as easily. Yeah, um, for sure. I think that's, that. you know, all that to say, periodized training is not just for the, um, you know, highly competitive, um, ultra-motivated and focused athlete. It can, it can be generally applied to uh, pretty much any activity, in, in any sport and any ability level. Yeah. And I think something that's worth bringing up here is, is something that's at the kind of the foundation of, of like why this works. And that's the concept of progressive overload, um, which we've probably talked about this on the podcast before, but to give everybody a refresher basically means that if you just keep doing the same thing, there's nothing for the body to adapt to. So the, the reason we continue to improve is because we're, asking the body to, to meet some demand that it previously wasn't able to do. And this, you know, this happens in sort of like an incremental way, right? So like throughout a block, you know, maybe each workout gets a little progressively harder and that's continuing to ask the body to do something that it, that it hasn't done before. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we, you know, we adapt to the new demands and we get a little bit better and then we need to increase that demand beyond that. Um, But, you know, maybe needless to say, we, this can't go on forever, right? Like mm-hmm. at, a, at a certain point, um, you're asking too much from the body and you need, you need a break. Right. Yeah. And, and I think that brings up a good point too, that the, the periodized approach is also highly individualized, uh, depending on the individual athlete. So, you know, someone could reach that point where they're, um, no longer making adaptations, much quicker than someone else, depending on the, uh, the, the focus of the training, um, or whatever the work is, whatever, whatever you're doing, you know, everyone progresses at different rates and, and that's where individualized training plans or programs comes handy because, uh, you know, you have someone there to kind of assess and analyze when you're approaching, uh, the plateaus or, um, you know, 
starting to see it drop off in, in the adaptations taking place um, and then redirect course based on that. Mm -hmm. um, so let's, let's talk a couple of the different approaches to periodized training. Um, the, the traditional one is, is considered a, a linear periodized approach. Who, who do you guys apply a linear periodization uh, training plan to? So mo most commonly, when I think of a linear periodization, I think about somebody who's doing um, like a relatively short and intense event, right? So if you were training for Criterium Nationals, it would make sense that you would you would start with you know base training, doing like long, slow, steady miles, which are very unlike the target event, and then you know as you kind of move through um, you know your 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 periodization. Um, the volume would decrease and the intensity would increase um, to become more and more like your short and intense event. Yeah, mm -hmm. so I think what you're what you're describing there is uh, you know sort of matches the the original kind of definition of traditional periodization, uh, which would be the furthest out from your event, you're doing very general training. Um, sometimes it's not even specific to the sport you're doing. Like we were just talking about Niels Vanderpool, the speed skater. Um, he was doing exclusively cycling, uh, you know, months out from his, or years out from his event even. You know, he was training for the Olympics. Um, exclusively cycling. Like he wasn't even putting his skates on. Um, just building that general aerobic fitness. Um, then as you, but, but then, then as you get closer and closer to your event, you start, uh, decreasing the, the generalized approach, getting a little bit more specific. So you're probably doing a lot more activity or a lot more, you're spending a lot more time in the activity that you're focusing on. And, um, in the process, you're, you're, you're probably decreasing your total volume of training, but starting to increase the intensity. Um, maybe you're, you start off with a little bit longer duration of intensity. And then the closer you get to that event, it, as long as we're, you know, we're talking about a higher intensity, shorter event like this, Andrew, um, those efforts start to get shorter and shorter, but higher and higher in intensity. And that's, that's mm -hmm. where the, the traditional or, you know, linear terminology comes from. Um, you see this very linear curve, um, in, or it's not a curve. It's just, you know, this, this linear trend in, uh, the relationship between the, the volume and the intensity in, in, you know, trending towards the specificity of the event. So in the, you know, week or two weeks before the event, you're doing, efforts that are very, very specific to the, the key event that you're training for. Mm -hmm. uh, I think cyclocross would probably fit into this too, right, Andrew? Um, you know, especially cyclocross from a, um, a, you know, technical side of things, um, you know, working on, you're, you know, you're spending a lot of time on your cross bike, you're doing a lot of drills that are related to cyclocross, you're probably trying to get as many uh, race days in your legs before your key event, um, especially because cyclocross is one of those disciplines that's very hard to replicate outside of a race. You know, a lot of a lot of the race specific adaptations can only come from race efforts. So, um, trying to get as many races in as you can before that key event, and then having a proper deload coming in. Uh, <clears throat> anything else to add with the traditional? I mean. I mean, I think you could probably apply traditional or linear periodization to most cycling disciplines. Um, I guess I, 
you know, when you get into longer distance events, uh, the, the one kind of tweak that I make is that I'll, I'll often apl- apply pretty much traditional periodization to longer distance events. But the, what I do is in the build period when intensity is increasing, instead of decreasing volume, I'll just maintain volume. Um, which gets a little bit tricky because, you know, it's, it's sort of a balancing act. You don't want to get over fatigued with high intensity and high volume. And, um, you're definitely, uh, you're definitely sacrificing a little bit of intensity to maintain this volume, but, uh, you have to keep in mind you're, you're training for a high volume event. So, so you need to, you need to maintain that volume. So, so Dylan, so I'm curious with that. So, um, I'm curious of what your approach would be. So would you, would you look at like the build phase, which would be, um, you know, probably in the, uh, you know, somewhere at least a month out from the event to then maybe three, four or five months, um, prior to the event, would you, would you look at increasing the amount of time that that build phase takes place? So, so that you're, you're building that continuing to build that volume at a slower ramp rate while increasing the, the intensity? Or would you actually take their reverse approach and shorten the build phase so that this overload of volume and intensity doesn't have as long of a lasting effect? Yeah, I would do the latter. I would actually okay. decrease the, the length of the build phase in a traditional sense, right? So traditionally, the build is when you're... Uh, increasing intensity and decreasing volume. Like I said, I don't necessarily want to decrease volume. It'd be preferable if, if somebody training for a long distance event could maintain volume and increase intensity. Um, sometimes sacrifices have to be made and, and volume does have to be decreased. Um, but yeah, I, I think if anything, the traditional build period where you're increasing intensity should be shortened. Andrew, anything else to add there? I, I was just going to say, um, you know, as Dylan was talking, I was thinking, you know, even for a criterium racer or a cycle cross racer, um, you know, once you get into the competitive season, um, let's say, you know, if you're like an elite level crit racer, for instance, and you race every weekend for maybe the entire summer, um, like the training that you actually do during the week is probably actually going to be very dissimilar to the type of racing you're doing. So if you race twice a weekend or even once a weekend, my perspective is that you've sort of like already met your fill of high intensity work. And so you actually don't need to keep training that. That's just, that's just going to overdo overdo it. Um, And so for, for those types of racers, really what I, what I would have them do is, is probably do, you know, like long, slow endurance miles during the week or, you know, you know, like maybe kind of depending on the timing, like maybe even like, you know, tempo sort of work or, you know, maybe they're doing VO2 work, but in any of those cases, um, like the power distribution from your weekly training is not going to look like the race. So in, in for our listeners out there who haven't, you know, looked at a lot of power files from, you know, criterium events, um, it's pretty much exclusively zone one and zone six you're spending practically, you know, zero time doing zone two, three, four, five, 
you know, within a right. six zone model. It's either like over 400 watts or you're coasting. Mm -hmm. Right. And I would say that somebody who is racing every single weekend, that is their specific training. Right. Right. <laughs> They're already getting in a lot of specific training because the race is as specific as it can get. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's overlooked sometimes by people, you know, when they're when they're building out their training plans is they uh, forget that racing is also a form of training. It just happens to have some results and uh, maybe a little bit higher stakes on the line, but um, your, your body doesn't know the difference. It's still making adaptations based on whatever effort is thrown at it and, and you know, stimulus it has to adapt to. So um, whether it's a race or a hard training day, it's still just going to adapt uh, as it normally would. Um, mm -hmm. and, and so one other thing, you know, I want to add here, um, and maybe, maybe we're already kind of moving towards this, but you know, a, as we kind of talk about like a traditional periodization, I feel like this might be like a nice time to kind of lay out, you know, some of the bones of like what, what are typical numbers for like on and off. Um, and so, you know, within a micro cycle, so that's like a weekly kind of, um, level of focus, you're going to do maybe two to four days on before you have a rest day, right? Mm -hmm. So that's like the, the most granular level of, of periodization. And then, you know, within like a month, you know, you're going to do, it's, it's actually really the same. So it's, you know, probably two to four weeks on before a week easy. Um, and I mean, the, we can get into the reasons why somebody might only be able to do two weeks on or, Maybe the reason why they're going all the way out to four weeks on, um, most typical being three to one. Um, and then, you know, in, in kind of like a, you know, I guess it would be like the, the mesocycle um, or sort of like a, a season, um, you might do, I mean, really, I guess maybe the same. So like three to five months of like steady building training before you taper and then maybe take a break. Um, but this could be expanded even further. So like in the case of like Neil Vanderpool, I don't know what you would call this cycle, but you know, he might do <laughs> like three years on, you know, where he's, you know, kind of really developing this aerobic foundation. And then like a year where he's just maybe more focused on like sharpening up and competition. So, mm -hmm. you know, that, that would apply to Olympic athletes. Right. Um, but I, I think it also really could apply to, um, you know, like, you know, developing like a junior or like a U23 athlete where like each year, you know, as we kind of have our eyes on development, you're increasing volume as if you're like moving through base blocks, but in like the widest, widest view to really develop their aerobic system. You know, so the time course for um, like adaptations on like the aerobic side are much longer, you know, and you can kind of like continue to build that like year in and year out. And so, you know, you, you hear coaches, you know, who are coaching, you know, like these athletes who maybe will one day like go and win the, the tour, you know, take this really long term approach where they're where they're like maybe sacrificing results even for multiple years to mm -hmm. um, develop them in the long run. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so let's move on to one of the next methods of periodization, uh, which would be the approach of reverse periodizing mm -hmm. a training plan. 
And I think this one's this one's interesting. Um, but I, I I want to hear your guys' take on it first. But what, what do you when when you hear reverse periodization, what do you what do you typically think of? Intensity in you know maybe in the winter months, um, and then you know as the season goes on, you're decreasing intensity and increasing volume, um, which it would be considered reverse periodization if the event is intense. Right. Yeah, and I think and that, that's the interesting part to me is um, you know that in the traditional sense, like periodized training when it was first developed was um, I want to say it was like developed around yeah it was like you know super you know highly explosive anaerobic uh you know sports so like weightlifting or trek sprinting or something you know very short duration very high intensity events um so that's that's where the traditional periodization came from was you're you're getting more specific to that very high intense short duration event so you know you start out general then you uh linearly uh adapt your training to get more specific, you know, shorter and higher intensity. But with so many different events these days, um, you know, you've got traditional road, you've got crit racing on the road, uh, you've got stage racing on the road, then you've got gravel, you've got short gravel races, you've got long gravel races, you've got mountain biking, short track, XC, you've got endurance mountain biking, marathon mountain biking. Um, Cyclocross is kind of unique in its own that it's, it's its own discipline and they haven't come up with inner discipline disciplines Differences, categories yeah. <laughs> um, Sub-disciplines. You know, it's just it's just like it's just cyclocross um, but there's so many different different disciplines within cycling now that i think the the terminology or definition of like traditional periodization probably needs to adapt or change um and, and become less about uh the 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 actual implementation of the intensity starting low and then increasing to just like getting from going from general fitness to more specific fitness. Um, cause, cause what would typically have been considered reverse periodization might actually be the appropriate periodized approach for something like training for an unbound, um, you know, or Leadville 100, uh, where the, the nature of the event, like you were talking about Dylan is actually, the, the opposite, you know, it's not short in duration. It's not super high in intensity. It's quite long. Um, there's still gonna be, you know, some intensity involved. Um, but it's, but in order to apply, you know, uh, an appropriate periodized approach, you, you would want to be getting more specific closer to your events. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, now if we are just talking reverse periodization in itself, it would, it would be taking the opposite approach, which would be doing your specific work, farther stuff from your event and then doing your least specific work close to the event. Have you guys heard of anyone who actually like has implemented that or if you guys tried that or done any research on, on what effect that might have um, and why someone might do that? So let me, let me give a very practical answer before Dylan gives like a more research based <laughs> answer. Um, the one group for whom I think that this works really well and this isn't, um, optimized for for physical performance. It's optimized for like the mental aspect. Is people who live in the northern, the far northern hemisphere where it's really cold in the winter, and really nice in the summer. Um, so f- for for those people, you're just, up in South Dakota. <laughs> from like a, a purely practical perspective, um, a logistical perspective, you could say, um, 
you know, you might do your, your short high intensity stuff in the winter when it's, when you're just stuck on the trainer and it's sort of unbearable to, to be outside. Um, you know, to ask those sorts of people, especially if they're recreational athletes to do like a 20 hour week, either on the trainer or in the frigid cold, it's sort of just cruel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then similarly, like once it actually gets nice outside, it's like May, June, the weather's finally nice. Um, you know, to deprive them of, of having the opportunity to actually ride long um, is also sort of cruel. And I think I think there's a way to, to do this such that you can still perform well. And, and also um, optimize conditions for the given activity. So, like, we ran into this a couple weeks ago, Andrew, where I was doing one of my first very high-intensity efforts of the year. Um, coming from South Dakota where the temperatures hadn't exceeded 50 degrees on a training day yet. And then I was in sunny California and it was 90 degrees and I like couldn't figure out why I was just dying on the bike. And you're like, well, you know, probably not quite acclimated to the heat yet. And 90 degrees isn't optimal for, you know, most intensity. So, um, you know, it it can be, yeah, it can be accommodating for that too. Like you may, might just not be physically or possible, and, and then, you know, that person is stuck riding the trainer in the summertime in order to avoid the heat of summer. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know of people who've done reverse periodization in the sense that their training is getting less specific to their race as they approach the race. And uh, I'm not going to name names, but it didn't seem to go well for them. Um, and... As far as the research goes, this is a topic that I've made a video on and I've, I've researched. There's not a lot of research on it, on reverse periodization. Um, most professional endurance sports athletes don't utilize reverse periodization. I'm not going to say all, but most don't. Um, they're, the, closest, the closest research that I can think of that comes to addressing this topic is... Uh, Steven Seiler uh, study where they had subjects increase intensity of intervals throughout a three-month period, decrease intensity of intervals throughout a three-month period, or just randomize the intervals. Um, I believe that increasing intensity of intervals throughout the three-month period resulted in the most performance improvement. Second was decreasing and then third was randomizing it. So I guess what that shows you is that at the very least, reverse periodization is better than having absolutely no plan at all um, and just kind of doing whatever. But um, I'll just say that, that the evidence is not there to suggest that reverse periodization is optimal in the sense that you're you would be getting your training would be getting less specific as you approach racing. Right. Yeah. And and theoretically, I think that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, unless like Andrew said, if, if it's application based, based on, you know, geography or, uh, maybe you've got like, uh, an odd job or maybe like you're a teacher or something where you've got summers off where like you, you can do a ton of volume in the summertime, but you can't do a ton of volume the rest of the year. You know, there, there are certain applications where it it is the only approach or, you know, ends up being the best approach. Um, but if, if 
if all things were created equal, I, I agree. I, I, don't, I don't think reverse periodization would stack up against traditional periodization. Well, and here's, here's another thing that I think is really important is if, um, like strictly from a, um, like the way they were layering on adaptation perspective, I think if you don't do base before you do your intensity, um, your ability, your capacity for high intensity work is actually going to be less. So if I've mm -hmm. built up a huge base, um, my ability to recover, you know, within a set of intervals or between sets of intervals is going to be much higher. So, right. you know, the person who has no base training, you know, maybe they can only do like two by eight Tabatas, you know, which would be like mm -hmm. a, like a 40 second on or 40 second on 20 seconds off type thing. Um, but you know, the person who has all that base can maybe do three by eight or three by 10 or, you know, four by 10, what, you know, whatever the number is, but the capacity is just going to be much higher. They're going to get a lot more out of it. Right. Or they can do their, you know, or they can do their VO2 max intervals at 400 watts instead of 350. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's, let's get into block periodization, which I think is an interesting one. I know Dylan, you've implemented block training. Um, mm -hmm. I have as well. I did a block period last year for the first time. Um, what, what is this, you know, how is this different from traditional periodization? Yeah, there's uh, some people have different definitions of what block periodization means, but I, I think if you if you look at the literature on block periodization, essentially what it means is that you're kind of preloading your intensity um, in in a training month. Uh, and what I mean by that is, let's say a typical training month, you're just doing two high intensity sessions per week for for you know, the entire month in a block periodized month, you would do maybe five or six intensity sessions in the first week. And then every week after that, you're just doing, you know, you're mainly recovering. So it's probably just one intensity session per week after that. And there's some, there's some, uh, there's, there's a bit of research on it and it's pretty promising research, um, where they've, the scenario that I just described to you, they've tested, um, you know, people head to head using both those scenarios, two sessions per week throughout the whole month versus, you know, five sessions per week in the first week. And then one session per one high intensity session per week, every week after that. And the block periodized group came out ahead. Um, and I believe they've done this for a one month period. And then there was, there's also a study where they did it for a three month period. Um, same result. So, so with that pretty interesting period, stuff, you're saying you repeat that same format across for three months. months. Yeah. So yeah. it's like, so you have your, I, I call it the block week. The block week is the high intensity week where you're doing five or six high intensity sessions in one week. You have block week, and then three weeks of, of very little intensity, block week, very little intensity, block week, very little intensity, repeated three times. Yeah, and a, and a key aspect of, of this approach is the, the emphasis on the recovery in the, in the following mm -hmm. subsequent weeks. Uh, if you try and do like five, then four, then three, then two, then one, or something like that, um, you're probably going to, Yes, mm -hmm. as far as intensity sessions per week, you're you're going to quickly burn yourself out um, in 
put yourself in a state of overtraining. Um, so you, you have to focus on that uh, specific recovery in the following weeks. Uh, it, I think usually, Dylan, is it your block week, so five, five or six intensity days, week one, then week two is that a full recovery week with no intensity sessions, and then maybe maybe a, a week later, you know, maybe on the weekend, you do an intensity session, and then you're you're kind of mm-hmm. just touching on that, doing maintenance sessions for the next couple weeks. Yeah, it, I mean, different people have different protocols on it. Um, the way that they set it up in in the research studies that I've read on it is it's five one one one. So okay. those are intensity sessions per week. Um, in those, those so, three, those th- the last three weeks when you're doing one intensity session, are they progressively overloading those or, you know, in- increasing no. those sessions or no, okay. not necessarily. Um, I think in a more practical real world way to do it would be to have a straight up recovery week the week after, um, maybe you don't even do an intensity session that week. And then the following the following weeks after that, you, you kind of see how your body is, is recovering, see how it feels, um, and make a judgment call on how much intensity you want to include in that week. I have, so from personal experience, I have screwed this up where I've wanted to get back to normal training too quickly and it has obliterated me. Um, Three years ago when I did the Pisca stage race, which is essentially a block week, it's five days in a row of racing. I mean, that's kind of what stage racing is. It's it's sort of like block periodization just in a race format. Um, I wanted I, – I, the next week was not a recovery week. I was like, I, you know, I was way too eager to get back to normal training. And I would say for two months after that, I was – I was useless on a bike. So you can screw this up. This is, this is a high level. This is not something that I, that I, uh, prescribe to beginners. This is a high level, uh, training pattern. Right. Yeah. I, I sort of screwed it up in the same way last year when I attempted it for the first time. And I was actually just looking back and kind of comical. Um, Mm -hmm. I did my five days. Then I took three days of recovery then I had a race. Then mm-hmm. I took two more or three more days of recovery. Then I did steamboat gravel, <laughs> um, which was like mm-hmm. a, you know, very intense, very long, uh, very, you know, high state of fatigue yep. after that race. And I was like, I was on the couch for pretty much a week after that. I was supposed to go do gravel worlds the like six days later. And I like, I like couldn't even get on the bike for, for the whole week after, after steamboat, I was so, um, I was just so spanked after not recovering properly. So yeah, that's what I mean. You, you do have to really emphasize the recovery after, after the the block period. You're lucky. It was just a week, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah, I was getting kind of nervous. I mean, I, 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 once I recognized the state of fatigue, I, you know, I, I pretty much took that entire next week off. Um, mm-hmm. only trained like six hours. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I, I was pretty lucky to bounce back. And then I, I saw a pretty significant fitness bump after that. Mm-hmm. But if you don't take the recovery seriously, you're not going to get the fitness bump. It's, it's going to just put you in a hole. Right. Yeah. And the other side of that coin is if you do it right, I've, uh, you know, research suggests that it's, it's, uh, 
it's a better way to train. And I have seen some of my highest numbers after doing, after implementing block periodization. So, um, you just, it's, I I think I had a video where I called it high risk, high reward training, which I think is a perfect way to put it. Um, because if you screw it up, uh, it's going to be bad and you're going to be overtrained and no, it's, it's not fun. If, if you do it correctly, you know, you, you could see some of your highest fitness levels. So, so, and is this an approach that you could apply over the course of an entire training season? Or is this something that you would, you would insert, uh, just to get that little bit of fitness boost at the appropriate time? Yeah, I, I usually, I would say the latter, um, there, you know, like I said, there is research that, that implemented this three times in a row and showed better results. I think in practice, doing this all year is a little bit too risky for the vast majority of people. Um, it's, it's usually something that I'll only do maybe two times a year, maybe three times a year, um, depending on what the year looks like. And it is usually, usually something that I do like a month and a half out from a big event. Andrew, anything else to add about block training? Um, no, other than that, I, I'm, I have I'm, one more question, but I, I'll let you step in first. I, I was just going to say that, um, there, there are different definitions of, of block periodization out there. And, um, mm-hmm. I, you know, if I'm familiar with what you and Dylan are talking about, but when I think of block periodization, the thing I think of is just focusing on one energy system for an entire yeah. block. That's, that's that, that is the, that's the other, that's the other definition. And it gets, it gets tricky, right? Because that's what some people think of when they think of block periodization and other people, it's like they need a, they need a different term for these two training styles. Cause they're not, they're not necessarily the same. Right. Although they're sort of similar in that if you're doing, you know, all of your high intensity in one week and, you know, and it's the same sort of intensity, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, in that case, that, that block really is also just focused on one energy system. Yeah, but, that, like, that was going to be my, my, my question was, um, you know, like Dylan, I, I, I've seen your approach where mm-hmm. throughout the course of that block week, you're hitting a few different types of stimulus, you know, a few different types yep. of workouts and, and working different energy systems. Um, but I'm curious what you guys think of, you know, what Andrew, what you're talking about here is rather than doing that, just focusing on one specific energy system that is specific to your key event. So, uh, you know, if it's crit racing, you're doing, you know, five days of anaerobic work. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't do that. Um, yeah. I would not, I mean, I generally, you know, I think less is more when it comes to the really high intensity stuff. Um, however, you know, with VO2 max or below, I think that this, this works really well. And the, the people who this is best applied to are advanced athletes because the impulse, like the training impulse required for them to get better at doing things that they're already quite good at is really, really high. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's, um, mm-hmm. This is sort of like thinking about progressive overload in like a yearly sense or like a multi-year sense, right? So like if we've already worked up to doing like three by 20 or four by 30 of tempo in a block, like if you want to develop more capacity for tempo, 
maybe you have to spend an entire block just working on sort of like sub-threshold work to see mm-hmm. further adaptations. Um, tempo is probably a bad example of this. I, I think maybe like a better example of this would be like threshold or VO2 max, where with you know a more recreational athlete or like a, a less advanced athlete, you know, I might I might have one day of threshold and one day of tempo or like one day of threshold and one day of VO2 or something in a block, um, and they're gonna just see improvements across the board. This is not gonna work for a developed athlete, right? Unless you know, unless we're, we're you know we're we're thinking about maintenance, um, which for periods of the year like you know during you know your race season like during cyclocross season maybe maybe you can't afford to try and get better at anything. Maybe the best case scenario, you know, while balancing recovery from the races is just maintenance, in which case block periodization probably wouldn't work well. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Well, what do you say we wrap the periodization discussion for now? If any of our listeners have more questions about periodization, uh, implementing it, or more specifics about what each of those different uh, periods look like, uh, you can send us questions to to the info at ignitioncoachco.com email. Um, And speaking of questions, let's just spend a couple minutes. We we did have another listener question come through that I want to just briefly address here. Um, Andrew, you want to take this one away? Yep. So, so I'm going to summarize here. Um, the, the question had to do with aerobic decoupling, which um, for the, the uninitiated is, um, you know, where power is held steady over the course of the ride and heart rate slowly kind of separates from that. It decouples from it. Um, it could go the other way as well. Heart rate could be steady and power could be dropping. And their question was, um, w- what are the standards that we're looking for um, to represent like a successful base period. Um, and then the follow-up question to that was, do we use different standards for different levels of athletes? So the, the categories they gave were untrained, semi-trained, or well-trained. Um, and uh, maybe we can start with, with Dylan. <laughs> um, wait, sorry, I was blanking out there. <laughs> I'm gonna be honest. But but by the end of um, <laughs> by the end of an athlete's base season, what sort of numbers are you looking for for aerobic decoupling? Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, so if they're doing if they're doing an endurance ride and um, and like they're they're keeping the power constantly in their endurance zone the whole time. Um, I, I mean, I'd like to see their heart rate not, you know, if it's a long ride, like a a four or five hour ride, I'd like to see their heart rate not, um, not increase by probably 10 or 15 beats per minute over the course of the ride. Um, I don't know. I don't know if you have a, um, if you think that's too much or too little, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, and this is what I told our listener who asked the question. Um, Endurance is a pretty big zone, actually, right? Mm-hmm. So, so especially if you're, um, you know, a high FTP rider, like in absolute terms, this could be like, could be like forty or fifty watts difference. Um, and so, I, I really do think that there needs to be a distinction made between, you know, riding like 
for is it low endurance versus high endurance? But you know, if we're yeah. assuming you know sort of middle of the road, and we're considering this, you know, um, you know whatever their longest ride is, if they're long, like kind of their average longest ride, so like maybe four hours. What I'm expecting to see, um, assuming that they're staying hydrated and feeling well on their rides, is less than eight percent decoupling. Mm-hmm. Um, that's based on, um, that's sort of like a heuristic I took from training peaks. There was like some articles about this a while ago that, that sort of posited that that was sort of the, a good golden number. And it's, it's been sort of corroborated by my experience working with a lot of athletes, um, that that's, that's a good target. Um, yeah, I think the height, the hydration component is definitely key, right? Because sometimes I I've had this happen where, uh, obviously as the base season progresses, it gets warmer outside right? And people might not be used to hot temperatures yet. And like they're, they're getting near the end of their base season, but they're also having some of their first hot rides of the year. And they're like, why is, you know, why it looks like I'm not fit. Um, I mean, it could just be dehydration in the heat. Yeah. Yeah. So that's definitely like a a super important thing to consider. Um, you know, and one thing I'll look at, um, is like on the weekends, a lot of athletes, especially those with families, will start their rides early and then they'll they'll kind of ride towards the hottest part of the day. Um, mm-hmm. So if you do a four hour ride that starts at eight a.m., maybe it's actually pretty pretty cool, but by noon it's 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 really really hot. Um, and so like in these instances, yeah, you definitely have to take this number with a grain of salt. Um, and maybe maybe even keeping like maintaining the same amount of like aerobic decoupling over a base season is good if the the daily highs are getting a lot higher or like the 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 max temp for a ride is getting a lot higher mm-hmm. um but yeah I, I think like one thing that i want to emphasize here is that um within actual endurance rides so this can't be a group ride it has to be like a steady endurance ride which is really the only situation where this metric i think applies um, is long, steady, uninterrupted endurance rides. Um, there, are, there are virtually zero athletes who are going to be able to achieve zero, like zero percent aerobic decoupling. I think mm-hmm. the very most fast twitch athletes among us, you know, maybe this is possible. You know, people who have like really supreme fatigue resistance. Um, but I think for anybody who has some distribution of um, you know, type two fibers, it's, it's just not going to be possible to get to zero. So I think, I think that that's maybe something to just consider, like what is the goal? So this is something that's currently being debated right now. And I don't think there's enough research on the topic to give a definitive answer, but it'd be interesting to hear what you guys think. Um, so about when, when your heart rate is drifting over the course of an endurance ride, uh, to the point where your heart rate is above uh, above zone two, you're above endurance zone at the given power output. Are, is it best to decrease power output to keep heart rate in zone two? Um, like I said, I don't I don't think the answer, at least in the research, is actually worked out yet. But I'd like to hear what you guys think about that. I think it depends on what the goal of the session is. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if the goal is um, like purely just like like base aerobic conditioning. What what I encourage my athletes to do 
is pace by power until heart rate leaves the zone and then decrease power. Mm-hmm. Um, however, maybe if the goal is like fatigue resistance, you know, like the ability to do like a certain amount of work after a certain number of kilojoules, yeah. perhaps in that case, then, you know, then, then you just got to keep the power steady. I, I guess, I guess the, the question is, um, if your heart rate goes above, uh, if your heart rate goes above endurance zone, but you're still in endurance zone power, are you accruing autonomic nervous system stress the same way you would be if you were to just go out and do a, a tempo ride or something? Um, because in that case, are we considering that in a high intensity day, even though your power was in uh, zone two the whole time? Um, and like I said, these are the uh, I from I, I think these are questions that are currently being worked out um, by researchers, um, and we may not fully have the answers to them yet. But well, let just, me speculate again for another moment on this topic. Um, because one thing that we, we know, um, and the reason why we don't base all of our training on heart rate is because heart rate is, is pretty variable day to day. So, Mm -hmm. you know, um, if you get behind on rest, your heart rate may be depressed. Right. Um, and so let's say, you know, I'm doing 200 Watts, but my heart rate is only like 120 or 125. That doesn't mean that I'm not doing quality endurance work. Um, because metabolically, you know, in muscularly, you know, the muscles are still doing, you know, that, that amount of work. And then on the other hand, you know, um, you know, like if you have like a like way too much caffeine, for instance, and your heart rate is, is elevated, you're, you're not, I don't think you're getting like the benefits of doing tempo work, right? you know, if you're still riding at an endurance. So it, I think, I think that there are different adaptations that are some based on heart rate and some that are based on power. Yeah. Another, another fact, a variable here, another wrench in the spokes here is, is if you're super fatigued and your heart rate is depressed, when you go like you go out and you ride and you just can't get your heart rate up. Um, could you, and I don't think this is, is the case, but, but if we were basing our zones purely off of heart rate, could you ride at tempo power, but be in zone two heart rate and not, not being, not accruing autonomic nervous system stress. Um, I'm, I'm going to say no because it's you yeah, know, sort of agree. like a chicken or the egg sense. Like the reason why your heart rate is not going up is because your mm-hmm. your ANS is so fatigued. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's over. It's too late. <laughs> yeah, I would. I would say. I would say to people who have this is getting away from the original question, but I would say to people who have this question because it's a question that I've gotten. Um, I would say. When in doubt, ride at, uh, when we're talking about power or heart rate, just ride at whatever is, is putting you at a lower intensity. (laughs) Um, if that makes sense, at least for zone two rides, you know, and to add to that for zone two rides, I mean, maybe the answer is, and maybe this applies to other intensities as well, like tempo or threshold. And this only works for athletes who sort of know their body, but in these cases, maybe you just ride to RPE, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think we're giving too much faith to zones in general um, in the sense that FTP, I think, is, is probably a pretty dynamic thing and actually does probably 
you know, like wane and wax with fatigue. I don't, I don't know that like feeling mm-hmm. like your FTP every single day of the week is 385 or, you know, whatever the number is, you know? And so if we allow ourselves to kind of, you know, pace based on RPE, um, you know, m- maybe we're actually, you know, like staying closer to like what the real, real zones would be like the actual physiological breakpoints. Mm-hmm. Sweet. All right. That was fun. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we do appreciate the, the listener questions. As you can see, sometimes they go off the rails a little bit, but that's what we're here for. Um, mm-hmm. Guys, unfortunately... And, and we did end up going over over an hour, even without yeah, Drew. So. I was going to say that. 15 minutes over an hour, so we can't throw a dizzle under the bus just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but thanks, everyone. We appreciate you tuning in. Uh, send us those questions. Uh, give, us, give us a review. Um, yeah, we'd just love to hear from you guys. All right. We'll see you guys soon. All right, folks. Thanks for tuning in for the latest episode of the Matchbox Podcast. Like I said at the beginning, you can send any questions or topic suggestions to info at ignitioncoachco.com with email titled the Matchbox Podcast. Links to each of our social media pages can be found in the show notes. Tune in next week for another endurance training-related discussion and learn about how you can find that extra match for your next big event. Catch you all soon. Let's go. Let's go.